a few weeks after getting back to San Francisco, he called up Pretty Boy and Jesse requesting a meeting. Kelly saw LSD changing people all around him, leading them into a spiritual practice, a greater understanding of themselves in their world, and a more open heart. His choice to go back into the LSD business seemed not only natural and obvious, but a moral imperative. Yet, by the start of 1971, the federal government was stepping up its prosecution of LSD manufacturers. Kelly heard a rumor there was a $50,000 cash reward from the Drug Enforcement Agency for information that led to his arrest and conviction. After a uh, trip down to Mexico to see a particular shaman, you're returning, and as you're driving into the city, San Francisco appeared in the distance, the beauty of the city shrouded in the swirling mist of the Pacific Ocean. As Kelly tasted the ocean on his tongue and smelled the fine salt being carried through the air, he realized he wanted to know. He wanted to take his seat in wisdom and to stay there. And for the first time, he wondered if hallucinogenics could get him any farther or if they had served their purpose. Besides, the counterculture was beginning to split along the seams. Those like Kelly, a small minority, were using drugs to expand their consciousness and heading more deeply into spirituality and deep inquiry. The rest were using drugs to deaden consciousness or bolster their egos, and they were heading in a different direction altogether. This split was beginning to be seen in the lifestyles of those around them. It really started to come unglued in a certain sense, didn't it? And really some of some of the uglier aspects of the of the typical drug trade using drug here as drug sort of came more and more to the fore as well, the spiritual seemed to happen when, there was uh, uh the movement was quite pure and innocent adolescent when you have pure in, innocent adolescence available the predators arrive right so what happened was the predators just came in in horrendous numbers oh, to God. feed on the on the innocent, and so you brought that quality of of, of egocentricity into the culture, right. and then it all became about money and partying, and you know it just it it <laughs> we lost control. Yeah, exactly, and then this is also the time where. Uh, you know, Timothy Leary uh, and so on were were, were making um, you know a big deal about it and drawing attention to it in, in really just some of the worst possible ways, and didn't leave much room for understanding psychedelics as entheogens, and that sort of, in one sense, was was the end of the purity of the movement. Jesse became the distributor of the Order of the Golden Frog. Kelly, as head of the family, continued his lifestyle, attending concerts, eating at the finest restaurants, wearing tailored suits, taking driving trips to remote corners of the world, driving exquisite cars, and having the means to do what he wanted whenever he wanted. 
He had an open and honest relationship with a woman he had met in a lingerie store before going to India in 1970. Brenda was an athletic blonde whose blue eyes were quick and steady. She was the perfect complement to Kelly. Grounded and calm, she had little interest in metaphysics, meditation, or in changing the world. After she and Kelly became lovers in 1971, they quickly became best friends. Her pragmatic and unemotional nature was a powerful obverse to Kelly's fiery and wild one, and they entered into a decade-long relationship that would define both their lives. And she was an important part of your life for the um, better part uh, of uh, a decade. And as uh, as Keith points out, sort of a perfect balance. Kelly and Pretty Boy continued to lay low over the summer of 1976, waiting to see what the Fed's next move might be. On a warm August morning, Kelly left his house in the suburbs of Portland for a run. As he ran down the block, He passed the trash truck. The men dumping the trash cans conspicuously avoided making eye contact as he ran by. There were two white men loading trash and one driving the truck, and all three seemed a little too square-jawed and clear-eyed to be working on one of the lower rungs of the employment ladder. Kelly turned his head for a second. Look, noticing their clothes were clean, their faces clean-shaven. That's not good, he muttered. Later that week, he went out in the afternoon for a jog, and this time noticed a man walking a German shepherd, a man he had never seen before. Like the garbage men, this man failed to make eye contact or say hello in the normally very friendly suburbs of Portland, and the man presumed a bit too intense in his casual indifference. Kelly's pit of anxiety grew deeper. Two weeks later, he went out to fetch his newspaper, As he bent down, a glint of sunlight came across his eyes from the tree across the street. The sun was at his back, and as Kelly stood and scanned the tree, he spotted something that made his heart hiccup in his chest. A camera aimed directly at his house. Oh, shit, he said, snatching the newspaper and running indoors. This was all not good. Uh, (laughs) You can say not good. Yeah, um, to put it mildly. And so you began a period on the run. Shortly after these experiences, Kelly pulled his car into his driveway, resisting the temptation to see if the camera was still in the tree across the street. He let himself into the front door and walked to the living room, then came to a dead stop. A book was sitting in the middle of the floor doing a split around its binding. His house had been searched, and the agents hadn't been very careful to return things to their original place. Kelly didn't know if he had surprised them and forced them to rush out of his house, or if they were so confident on his arrest that they were not bothering to hide their tracks at all. Either way, it was bad, very bad. Getting arrested was not to be in a position of power. The only way Kelly planned on dealing with the feds was to turn himself into them after his lawyer negotiated terms. 
Kelly moved swiftly through the house, packing bags for himself and for Brenda. He had $250,000 in cash, another $40,000 in gold cougarans, and an extensive wardrobe. He cherry-picked what he could so that when Brenda walked in, she was greeted by four large bags and a very intense-looking Kelly. We have to go, Kelly said without pretense, right now. They were in the house, and they're going to arrest me at any moment. Brenda, ever flexible, wiped a few tears from her eyes, got a favorite jacket, and was ready to go. With $300,000 in cash, gold, and jewels, he and Brenda headed north, beginning their five years on the run. A few months into their trip, he traded the 4x4 for a Volkswagen pop-top minivan with tags and title that were good for a few years. He and Brenda journeyed to nearly every state, visiting the national and state parks, staying in their van, keeping themselves warm with campfires and lovemaking. That must have been a difficult period to be on the run like that and always in sort of one sense or another having having to look over your shoulder. Well, actually, it was it was quite remarkable. It was one, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the stress was gone. I was gone. And if you're professional in your disappearance, yeah, uh, it, it, you're not going to get caught. You have to violate. It takes an act of God to get you caught if you have resources and intelligence. Right. Yeah. So you just don't break the communication rules. Right. And, uh, there's no trail. Without a trail, there's no possible way. Right. But, uh, but there are moments when things happen. A few things happen. One time a, a policeman came to the door at my condo in, in uh, Palm Beach, and, uh, you know, it, that really shook me. But he <laughs> was inquiring about someone who lived in the building. Oh, dear. <laughs> of course, I saw him, I, I freaked. But, but it was unnecessary because he wouldn't be a policeman coming to my door. It would be the door of the <laughs> But there, there were memories, and then you know, running out of money and realizing also, what do I do? You know, I'm a, yeah. I'm a, I'm a zealot. So right. what am I doing with my life? You know, driving, right. driving around, you know, staying six months here and there. This wonderful life of early retirement, first. Right, right. And someplace in the back of your mind, knowing that it, it can't really go on forever. After a few weeks on the road, Kelly and Brenda decided that the bucolic town of Woodstock, New York, would be their new home and so there you moved and then your next step in uh zen if you will in 1978 he meaning you came across an article by renzai zen master edo shimano roshi who pleaded that no more phds be sent his way they already know everything he had written kelly who was a two-fisted intellectual loved the description he was drawn to Zen already, and Edo Roshi had just opened a monastery through the Zen Study Society in the Catskill Mountains, not that far from Woodstock. He decided to drive down and investigate further. He stayed for a public meditation and then immediately signed on for the next long retreat, lasting 100 days. So um, you are drawn to Edo and um, begin your 
at this point, kind of off and on, flirtation with studying with him was something that would lead to studying with him in a very serious way and practicing with him for uh, a six-year period. Well, actually, I trained with him for about 18 years, uh, and uh, birds of a feather flock together. Right. <laughs> Itarush is quite the character. He's retired now, finally. Oh, wow. When did he do that? Uh, a few months ago. Oh. A couple months ago, yeah. Yeah. So uh, he's going to devote himself now to translating certain works that he thinks are really important to have translated. Uh. But it was that comment, don't send me any PhDs, that attracted me to him. And then the Shikantaza practice of just a simple awareness sitting, uh, I found to be not as effective as uh, Kika Onza, which is penetrating using koan. Right. Right, where you use and you actually use a statement as an inquiry, the injunction, the your mantra right. that tunes mind. Right. Mantra in the in the Chinese tradition is called koan. Right. And so I was attracted to the koan uh energetic uh approach and right. Roshi and and I connected nicely. And we have a minor connection in that uh Edo Roshi when I was first starting, um, I had uh, written him a very long letter and explained my, you know, my deep desire to study and practice then. And he actually assigned me the Koan Mu by uh, by mail. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading that. Yeah, that just really cracked me up. Yeah, so it's like I couldn't believe it. So uh, that was, you know, that was great. So what happened was, for me, and this is the whole the whole koan process and the chronology of the koans and for, for how they how they work. Right. And but the koan, what, what I just cracked up one day when I realized that that Joshua didn't say or Mao Tzu didn't say mu. He said wu, right? He was Chinese. Yeah, wu was Chinese. Yeah. He also didn't even say wu. What he said was no. Right. Oh, so he actually said no. Well, he said "wu," and the Japanese say "mu," and I'm supposed to say "mu." I'm supposed to say "no." <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And that has enormous importance. And this is what I do with the Mondo process and the practices: is you need to really understand what you're doing. If you can't understand it, you can't redefine your structure. Right. So it's like so the 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 mu koan is the no koan, and I do that with a double edged sword, k n o w and n o simultaneously. Right, right. So explanation. Now you know what you're doing, right? And right. Supposed to just you know mu 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 as if that screaming in the darkness long enough is going to break you open. Right. It does to a degree, but but there's a much more efficient way to go about things. Right. Well, that makes a difference because no, if you're saying, does the dog have Buddha nature, and then you answer no, then that's a very different situation because that's actually, you know, going against all of the Buddha's precepts, which maintain that all sentient beings have Buddha nature. Right. So the answer here, the command here is no, it doesn't have a Buddha nature. And that's that's different. And that's, then the deeper realization, it's no to the stupid question. <laughs> well, various levels of understanding and realization. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Four years into their life on the run, their money, which had seemed infinite, was dwindling. 
Ooh, yes, ooh, yes. Oh, that must have been a thrill. So represented by Mark Topol, uh, one of the very finest uh, lawyers in the San Francisco area, you struck a deal, two years in Pleasanton Federal Correctional Facility. Actually, the deal that I struck was 18 months and a $50,000 fine. Right, and that was in San Francisco, and then you moved up and had the, the trial redone in uh, Portland or something because the shitty-ass deal that was going on down in San Francisco. Um, yeah, well, the deal for some reason, and the, the only reason the system works is because of arrangements that are made, plea bargain. Right. Arrangements that are made, and those are illegal in the federal system, so it's all a secret handshake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the judge to agree to everything, and when the judge agreed, and then when I came in, he disagreed. Right. Which quite shocking to everyone and of course the whole system collapses if they can't keep their deals right so they had to try to work something out so the first of all i told me i could go underground again and i went but my father and five of my friends put up their houses to make my half a million dollar bail oh i know i know i said i can't go and abandon them have them thrown out of their homes so then i know i know we we could change venues we were just lucky because it was it was both uh San Francisco and Portland were two regions that were involved, so we could switch venues. Yeah, yeah, um, and so all of that is is proceeding. Uh, you tell Edo, and uh, basically about all he said was prison, good place to practice. Right, <laughs> he was right, <laughs> and it was right. Turned out to be right on the money. There was, uh, as you got the venue changed, and a new judge. Uh, what? Judge Burns said, I I thought, very interesting. Uh, For the record, Judge Burns continued, I want to note that I don't think it will do you or society one bit of good to put you behind bars. But due to your notoriety and to not discourage the agents who pursued you and the substantial investment of time and resources dedicated to your capture, I feel obligated to give you this sentence. The judge looked down at Kelly, who stood with his hands folded in front of him. Do you have anything you would like to say, Mr. Kelly? Yes, Your Honor, Kelly responded. I would like to note that LSD-25 was able to change the hearts of thousands of people for the better, including me, and that getting it out into the world was something that I considered a service to humanity. The exposure to lysergic acid is itself a spiritual Mark Topol stomped on Kelly's foot, and uh, Kelly said, glancing over at the glowering Topol, and that's it, Your Honor. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, enough of the uh, uh, spiritual nobility uh, angle. A two-year sentence meant Kelly would serve 20 months with uh, good behavior. And was that also a uh, 50000 Yes. Okay. Kelly spent his days playing tennis and soccer and football, jogging, reading, and meditating. He got permission to set up a body-mind program where he taught marathon running, Zen, and Astanga yoga. It helped Kelly refine his teaching skills with a unique blend of, quote, students. For in prison, everybody was trying to hustle someone somehow. Most of the people went through his program 
for the singular purpose of hoping it might reduce their sentence. They hung around just long enough to determine if it was having an effect on their time served, and if not, they left. <laughs> so, but this part um, was incredibly interesting and, and virtually unheard of. Mark Topol suspected that Judge Burns had been intrigued by Kelly's file, which showed time spent in a Zen monastery, a serious yoga practice, a long history of teaching, and a strong desire to help people who were suffering. So seven months into Kelly's sentence, and this is into a two-year sentence, he requested what is known as a review of sentence. This was very unusual given the relative short length of the sentence. Normally a judge would laugh off such a request, but Topol was the top defense attorney in San Francisco for a reason. He knew that Judge Burns would likely shake his head at the boldness of the request, but also suspected the judge would have to peek at Kelly's record out of curiosity. And that's exactly what happened. What Judge Burns saw was that Kelly had become a model prisoner. He had started a yoga, Zen, physical embodiment school in prison, was counseling other prisoners, and had several positive notes from guards. And Judge Burns did something virtually unheard of. He ordered Dennis Kelly's immediate release, surprising even Topol. And um, there's a, a bit of um, hassling from the, the guards and the warden who figured that you must have snitched on somebody to get something this unheard of. And so they, they spent some time uh, messing with you. Um, but finally, you get out of prison. And then Brenda, your girlfriend of 10 years, leaves because basically she doesn't want to be a Zen Roshi's wife. Well, she said that the, of all the, the considerations for her, the minister's wife was the last on the list. Yeah, right. But, and But more important than that, you know, she had to find herself and make her own way. Yeah, and it was obvious that y'all did great for, for the time you were together. And she gave you, you know, all the space in the world to pursue Zen and you gave her all the space in the world to not do it, and you guys got along great. But it, it just, uh, you were in different directions, and it was, you know, pretty clearly time to uh, to separate. Traveling to India had once changed his life, so Kelly thought it was time for him to make another trip. Perhaps this would provide the clarity he sought. His plan was to spend several months studying under Vatabi Jwa, a master yogi in Ashtanga who had few equals. Life in India was achieved by American standards. He would be able to stretch his modest savings a long way there. He rented a spacious apartment near Vatabi's house where the master lived and trained. Vatabi was a real character in his own right a yogi of almost unparalleled realization and skill, and not above the occasional demonstration of his humanness. At the beginning of the third week, 
Professor Bara Char pulled Kelly aside. Mr. Kelly, he said, being more forceful than Kelly had yet seen, you need to leave this place and come with me. Together we will explore the temples here in southern India. There is something you need to see. Temples? Kelly's tone dismissed the notion. Professor, I've seen plenty of India and plenty of temples. I'm here to study under one of the greatest living yoga masters, the same man you're writing a book about. That is not why you are here, Mr. Kelly. Kelly just raised his eyebrows, laughed, and walked away. As the days passed, the professor became increasingly adamant that Kelly go with him and visit Hindu temples. Listen, Professor, Kelly said, irritated after a week of saying he was not interested. I'm not going to go look at the temples. I've already seen enough of India, as I told you. I'm here to train with Patabi and nothing else. This is all I need and want right now. Barachar smiled, revealing his white, evenly spaced teeth. There is something you need to see, Mr. Kelly. You need to visit the Hindu temples in the south, for they are still uncorrupted and have treasures not yet plundered to behold. Kelly shook his head, putting his hand on the man's shoulders. Thank you, Professor, but I'm here for Patabi. To train with him is an honor, and I'm not going to leave his side to sightsee. Another two weeks passed, and while Kelly and the professor talked about a great many things, Barachar never stopped insisting that Kelly leave his training to travel. Okay, Kelly said one morning after their meditation, I'll go. And then uh, another I uh, just mind-boggling experience. Um, Kelly entered a temple on his fifth day, so much like the others. After walking across the meticulously maintained temple grounds, he was ushered in with about 50 other people, the only Caucasian on the entire temple grounds, as had been the case at every temple. They stepped into the darkened temple, and as Kelly had seen before, there were temple priests burning thick, camper incense and chanting 20 feet away stood the closed shrine and the chanting and music intensified kelly watched with a wandering attention as the shrine doors slowly opened revealing two solid gold statues encrusted with jewels shiva and shakti they stood maybe three and a half feet high and were dazzling to behold, cast forever in a frozen dance, each deeply engaged with the other. The gold was clearly pure, and the statues very obviously ancient. Rubies were embedded as eyes, and painted and sculpted features that were remarkable in their artistry. The chanting intensified, causing Kelly's heart to open to the beauty of the voices. The smoke was heavy, and his nostrils, with the crowd adding to the intensity of the southern India heat. Shiva's golden head turned, and his ruby eyes looked out over the crowd, causing many people to gasp or begin chanting, and a few to faint. 
Kelly stared, wide-eyed, and blinked. He had just shared a group hallucination. How interesting. But then Shiva's golden leg came down to the ground, and Shakti, too, turned and faced outward. Both deities smiled, going through some kind of mudras together, moving gracefully from one position to the next, their face full of joyous love. They moved fluidly for many long minutes until their bodies began to once again grow rigid. Shiva first came to his original position, the animation slowly leaving his body. There was only a beautiful gold statue standing, lifeless as it had been when Kelly entered. Shakti too slowed and took up her original position. Before her head turned, she looked out across the crowd and met Kelly's eyes with her own ruby ones. Kelly felt an opening in him beyond anything he had ever experienced before, a movement of energy through his body that blew his consciousness into the corners of the universe. He was suddenly not sure if he still had a physical body, for he was all energy, all movement, and felt the most pure and divine feminine love erupt in his heart. The shrine doors came to a close, and the priests harshly pushed the worshippers out, many of whom, like Kelly, were barely able to walk. Kelly stepped out into the midday sun, feeling its warmth across his skin. A more sensual touch and more intimate connection than he had ever experienced in the embrace of a woman. Tears ran down his cheeks without effort or awareness, and the earth felt as if he were walking across a pregnant belly. And so it was with reverential feet that he trod the grounds. He got lost twice in the simple rectangle, and smiling soldiers gently guided him towards the front gates. Kelly wandered out onto the street where he saw the car with the professor inside. He got in and sat down. Barachar dropped his hands together, touching Kelly's heart. That is what you needed to see, Mr. Kelly, he said gently. Kelly stared at him, struggling to understand the words, yet unable to forget them. You have received the divine feminine into your own heart. You will never again be the same. That was what you needed to see. Thank you for the deep honor to have shared this experience with you. Kelly was incapable of speech and would not be able to utter a single sound for three days. His saintly companion guided him into the homes where they slept helped to feed him at times, and simply let Kelly swim in the sea of acceptance and healing that had overcome him. What on earth do you make of that? <laughs> oh, my God. That is an extraordinarily beautiful story. Yeah, and something else. Uh, there were no hotels. We were, we were just gone. And uh, so we slept in people's homes. And yeah. 
care of and as if we were saints or something. It was unbelievable, the whole trip. And I ate everything. I drank the water, which, you know, you know better. I've traveled to Asia, so, I mean, I had bottled water. I boiled my water. I ate and drank everything. I was never healthier. It just oh, my God. And, uh, you know, to enter into the intersubjective, subtle space of a culture as deep as that. Yeah. It was it was just a miraculous gift. Um, yeah. Again, because I had deconstructed and established structure that allowed experience neurobiologically from all of my psychedelics and my meditation and work and shifting my understanding, the door was open for that possibility. Right. But again, these are subtle states and subtle energies. That, right. That you can't, we can't really say much about. Right. We're getting we're getting better at at, at discussing it, but uh, it was a great gift of you could say the divine feminine that broke my heart. Uh, indeed, and God bless Barachar. Yes, he was he was <laughs> relentless. <laughs> <laughs> and as you said, turned out to be one of one of your one of your true teachers for going to India. Yes. Well, it's a wonderful story, and uh, I, I love the way this man simply spotted you, and for whatever reason knew that you were to have this experience, and just would not let go of your ass until you agreed. And uh, I just—it's an exquisite story, and I just uh, um, delighted to have had the uh, opportunity to read that. It's—it's uh, it's really just beautiful. Yeah, it's, 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 my life has been the most amazing gift. <laughs>